to the cloud. There we go. All right. So we are officially underway. How's everybody doing? Doing great. Everybody's doing great. All right. If you you don't have to turn on your cameras, but I'd love to see you. Feel free to uh, to stay camera off or on, whatever you prefer. All right. So this class is actually going to be the first of hopefully quite a few um, regarding this topic. Um, I think, you know, as we go forward through the weeks, we're going to try to do um, more than just Rabbi Slifkin stuff. I think I'm going to try to also uh, get around to other Jewish philosophers or just philosophy in general, physics, metaphysics. I'm in for all of it. I want to hear from you guys what you enjoy the most. Um, and, you know, uh, I think it'll be a very interesting topic. But are you staying, Judah? Or I'll, oh, wow, fantastic. I think you'll enjoy it. Even though you're 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 not a loyal brother, you'll be yeah, you'll enjoy the class. So so first of all, what do you when you hear the word epistemology, what do you think of? I think it's it comes from something Greek. That is right, right? Logi. Okay, I didn't even I didn't even think of the etymology oh, per se. Wow, you're a brilliant man. Hacham enav berosho, as we say, exactly. So. I, my class. I think that was a college class on epistemology that I took in. Um, no way! In wow! Here. All right, we got a, yeah. a star um, here. And in which we talked a lot about the Matrix. <laughs> wow! All right, I love it already. That sounds like a great class. It was fun. Uh, that's awesome. So, epistemology is, as we wrote here, the nature of knowledge and where it comes from. So, I think this is probably the most interesting topic I know of. Uh, just to fill whoever wasn't uh, in my class on Shabbat. I gave a class on Shabbat. Hi, Beruchim What's up, guys? That I gave a class on Shabbat this past Shabbat a few days ago about the limits of rationalism. And for me, this has been a, you know a, a long time in the making. Thank you for coming. Um, this idea of the the path towards truth doesn't only depend on rationalism. That there are truths in the world that don't only depend on what the left brain says and. This guy, Rabbi Shalom Karmi from YU, he actually wrote a beautiful pamphlet to his, his former student who was telling him that he doesn't believe in a lot of these different things. And he developed, Rabbi Shalom Karmi's response is so brilliant that it really changed the way that I think about truth in general. And a lot of this had to do with epistemology, which means the study of how we study things. How do we study things? How do we know what's true and what's not true? So a lot of us today take it for granted that the only means to truth is logic. I've laughed many times at people who, who told me, oh, you don't just need to use logic. I'm like, what are you talking about? If it's not logical, it's not true. And I, I was so, you know, in such a delusional state, I think, in a way, because who am I to say that? You know, so th this was the argument from, from Rabbi Carmi. Before we go on, he says as follows. He says, we as humans evolved the brain. If you evolve the brain, the brain is a package deal, right? And therefore... If you're going to use any part of that brain to discover truth about the world, you need to respect as equally valid all the functions of this brain and all the different capacities. So to only use the left hemisphere of the cerebral cortex as a means to truth is extremely faulty because that's the only thing that, that you know, you to think that logic is the only thing. What about intuition? What about the experience? What about the emotions? There's truth to be found in that as well. Question. Shouldn't all those things be encompassed in logic? 
anyway. encompassed in logic. How do you encompass an experience in just logic? If I know it hurts when I touch fire, logically, it shouldn't touch fire. Mm -hmm. And I know I feel great when I do X. Oh, fine. Logical so, so but the question is yeah. morally now. So the question is, I experienced this amazing thing on a mountaintop. Right. Different people make different conclusions. It's not it's not as obvious as touching a fire. You well, know? It's logic that so that's the thing. I logic think logic. That. I experienced an amazing thing on the mountaintop. Exactly. So, that... so now what's the question of truth though? If if logic leads you to believe that everything is reductionistic and everything is just made of particles, that's it. Is that logical? It is logical, I think. You're about to say it's not. I, I don't think that that's the only thing. I think the fact that we experience existence on this nested layer of reality has something to do with truth. I think the truth that we discover through this human lens is very limited because it's a human lens. And I'm trying to show you, we use logic, rightfully so, but we should also use other things happens to be that Rabbi Slifkin's book here called Rationalism versus Mysticism is not only based on, uh, it's it, his primary point is pro-rationalism, sure. but he, he's also going to say that he's not only for rationalism, he's also going to say that Judaism as a whole needs mysticism as well. You need both sides. It's like a yin and a yang. So let's, let's dive in a little bit. So we'll just read a little bit about what I, I copy pasted from Wikipedia. By the way, if any of you Zoom people have questions, feel free to ask. Really, uh, you're more than welcome to participate. Um, so epistemology, who wants to read? Anybody you want to read, Joe? Oh, no problem. I thought you were talking about computer. Oh, yeah, you could, you could read. Uh, from, the tab of epistemology? from right here. Yeah, uh, okay, epistemology, the nature of knowledge and where it comes from. Yeah, okay, is the branch. Okay, epistemology is the branch of philosophy concerned with knowledge. Epistemologists study nature, origin, and scope of language. Of knowledge. Epistemic justification, the rationality of belief, and various related issues. Epistemology is considered one of the four main branches of philosophy, along with ethics, logic, and metaphysics. Okay, so super interesting. This is a lot of stuff that really gets me thinking, but it's now not our main goal. Um, and then you could see that the, there, there are these debates in epistemology. So one of them is about philosophical analysis of the nature of knowledge and the conditions required for a belief to constitute knowledge. So that's kind of what we've been discussing. Like, what is truth? The other one is potential sources of knowledge. Like, what is a proper source of knowledge? So perception, reason, memory, and testimony. The other one is the structure of a body of knowledge or justified belief, including whether all justified beliefs must be derived from justified foundation of beliefs. Okay, so that's a um, deeper point. And then philosophical skepticism, which questions the possibility of knowledge. Maybe we can't even know anything in the first place. Just very interesting ideas here. So now, um, I just love this here. What do we know? What does it mean to say that we know something? And what makes justified beliefs justified? And how do we know that we know? These are just questions that I think we should be taught about the concept of epistemology from an early age, just to notice how biased everything is just by virtue of coming through us as humans. I think there's a great humility in that also. I think the humility is knowing that whatever I am noticing already is, is not actually reality by virtue of it being filtered through me. So that's just a very humble point, I think. So I want to tell you a very quick story about two yeshiva students. So one yeshiva student was, you know, doing a certain thing, praying in a certain way. The other yeshiva student 
for it in a different way, and he was not following the ruling of the Gadol Hador. What's your first impression of, of this story? What, what's your impression of the guy who's not following the Gadol Hador? My very smart guy. Okay. Anybody else? No, what do you guys think? No. What do you guys think on Zoom? Any, any, any ideas? Hold on. We have to... Do we have to read what's going on, or you're just saying? Oh, this is the story. What's your first impression of the student who won't follow the Gadol Hador? Um, there have there have been so many. There are probably like a billion rabbis who disagree with the Gadol Hador. There you go. That's so. The, the answer to this uh, riddle, it actually has an answer, is that the student is Sephardic, that the Ashkenaz kid is so. Confused, how could the Sephardic kid not be keeping the halakha the way that I'm keeping it? And then the point of it is, oh, when he realizes that the kid's Sephardic, it no longer bothers him. So the, the point of the story is to highlight that there's a lot of different ways that we can classify Jewish people. You could classify them as Sephardic versus Ashkenaz. You could, you could uh, classify them as, um, I don't know, Haredi versus not Haredi. But this book, I think that, that I'm about to get from Rabbi Slifkin, and I actually listened to the introduction, that's how I was able to make these notes, is going to really discuss the, the difference between rationalism and mysticism. And what are the virtues of each of them? What's the virtue of being a rationalist versus the virtue of being a mystic? And what does it really mean? What are the ramifications and which one makes more sense, in, in a, in a, even though that word is difficult to use in, that, in this context? Um, okay, so today, the, the interesting thing is, there is this attempt to force different schools of thought in Judaism together that are really at odds. And that's something that's, that's interesting because you grow up a, as a student and you start reading these different things and you assume that Judaism is this one corpus of knowledge, but really it's, it's, it's a whole bunch of different voices. It's polyphonic. The whole point of Judaism is that there's fundamental disagreements. And I think there's been a little bit of like revisionist history. So these are like my talking points. That's how I write these notes. There's a bit of revisionist history going on regarding how to understand the different schools of thought in Judaism. That a lot of people want to claim that everything is in agreement and that there's no contradictions in the different schools of thought. And meanwhile, that's clearly not true. Not just right. today, but... I'm sorry know. to interrupt you, Michael, but I was going to ask, when you say force together different schools of thought, do you actually mean one squashes the other? Yes, exactly. That's exactly the right. point. And I right. think that, you know, it's, it's always going to come down to that. And uh, it's yeah. more often than not, recently it's been mysticism. And that's one of the quandaries. So we'll see in a minute the interesting trend that happens that leads to that. Well, so, it's, I mean, it's, it's very often with... Um, interpretations of halakha too. I was I was once told by a complete stranger on the street that I was dressed improperly. And when I tried to tell her, well, to each his own, she said, well, there's only one Torah, so there's no to each his own. Wow. Wow. Very, <laughs> like, uh, okay, I can't talk to you anymore. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's it's very it's very difficult anytime you ever have somebody trying to quash out the other. I think that's probably one of the biggest themes in my life is learning the the right dynamic with other people. You know, to not feel like I'm a doormat and not be too nice to people to allow them to step all over me, but also 
to respect another person's boundaries, to respect their opinions, to respect their right to have something and not feel like their, their different opinion is a threat to mine. I think that's such a foundation of psychology today, as well as just living in, at, in peace and harmony with other people. And so often that's, that's what all of my uh, conflicts boil down to is feeling either like this person is trying to destroy me and not giving me enough room to breathe or that I'm doing the opposite. And it's always my job to kind of navigate that and figure that out and, 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 you know, resolve the conflict accordingly. So, so that's one of the, the tragedies about, um, about Judaism is that oftentimes people are trying to portray it that way, but really the real beauty in Judaism as it is in the rest of life on this planet is that diversity is so often a beautiful thing that allows more beauty to emerge and not less. Um, Anybody have any questions so far? Any comments? I think, mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting because we're looking through that objective. You're doing great, Mike. Keep it up. Thank you so much, Ma. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that we're so fearful of other people's opinions and other people's thoughts because we're really looking for our positivity at the end of the day, but it should be between what they say and aggregate on to our own opinions. Absolutely. That's exactly it. That's the humble part of us is that that's able to learn if you're not if you feel threatened literally physiologically the the part of your brain that turns on is the reptilian brain it's the fight or flight brain if you're afraid if you're scared and you shut off all the ability for higher thinking and if you're if you're calmer if you're in a in a good interaction with somebody and you, then you, you kind of quiet down the fight or flight and you allow the higher levels of thinking to turn on. Interestingly enough, when we put little children through testing, it's crazy because they have, I, I had a lot of test anxiety as a kid and what's happening, exactly what you don't want to be happening, fight or flight kicks in, you turn on the lizard brain and there goes all the logic, there goes all the 48 hours of math homework you did. And then comes the test. So it's just interesting to, to realize the way that human psychology works in terms of that. Um, okay. So Judaism is not a single monolithic entity. And there's a long history of disagreement. And like we said, there's revisionist history going on. Um, and not only that, there's also an ancient history. Sorry, I can't get this thing to uh, perfect. Um, there's an ancient history and heritage of rationalism. So some people might claim, well, the mysticism is from Moshe, Sinai, all of that. Rationalism has just as legitimate a history and a uh, heritage as does mysticism. And I've, I heard a great class from Rabbi Joey Dweck once about where he literally traces back these two different schools of thought all the way to you know, Yosef even. Like he said, Yosef is like the dreamer. He's the one that's more mystical in a way. And the brothers are more practical. And that was really almost like a philosophical difference that you could read into that story if you want through that lens. And you look at Moshe versus Korah. Moshe is this guy coming from the mountaintop, from up above. That's more of a mystical thing. Korah is asking the practical questions. If you have a begit, you should call it techelet. Do you need techelet zitzit? Why? If it's, I know it's four corners, but the whole thing is techelet. Or if you have a, a, a room with Sifre Torah in it, full of Sifre Torah, do you really need a mezuzah? So he's asking those rationalist questions. And you, you, you know, the B Ishmael versus the B Akiba, you could go through a litany of, of this, but the beauty is to notice 
not that one is necessarily more correct than the other, which I, I think he actually might argue more in this book for the sake of rationalism. And I think in a lot of ways, I do side towards that. But you have to also never forget the beauty of the other side. And there is a yin-yang relationship here that they, they, they're mutually dependent and they need each other for a healthy survival of Judaism. Yeah. Sounds like if you go back a really long time, I don't think you'd find that many rationalists uh, mm. points of view looking at the Torah. It seems like people just took it more and more. You're saying when they look at the Torah, they're not looking at it from a rationalist perspective. The point is, like if you look in the Gemara, which is probably the most important thing to talk about in this context, is it shaped the way Judaism developed. There are two schools of thought very clearly: Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Akiva, as well as different members of Hazal who preferred one or the other. And we'll get to soon more better examples of that. That's a that's a very good point. Um, if you guys any have any comments, of course, feel free anytime. Um, so now that's what I was just saying is this, there's not a goal here to delegitimize the non-rationalist approach. And it's funny, it isn't called it the irrational approach, right? It's just non-rationalist. To call it irrational would be a, a degrading thing. It would be like, oh, they're just stupid. It's not that they're stupid. It's just that they have a different epistemological lens. And that's why I gave you this whole thing about epistemology in terms of understanding the world. It doesn't detract necessarily from the real message of what they're saying. Yes. So non-rationalist does not always mean irrational. Exactly. So if non-rationalist could, if it's not irrational, does that mean it's rational? It can be. So, but I think, I think it's, I don't know. Actually, I think it's fundamentally not rational, but I don't think. It cannot be irrational. Yeah, I don't think it has to be irrational. I think it could be in line with rationality, but maybe its source comes from something other than just pure rationalism. I definitely need to to speak to more non-rationalists though to really fully <laughs> fully grasp it because I'm I'm a I'm in medical school, you know, like it's hard for me to speak about it, you know. I think the yeah. left brain, right brain is a good metaphor. It's the you were citing the left brain as as like. A, rational but it's more than that there it's really non-realistic if you listen mm. to the, the most recent Sam Sam wow the, one, the the left brain would make up stories for why things happened if they didn't have a reason and it was completely detached from reality wow and so the point is you need to incorporate more than just the left brain more than just the purely rational thing that's not rooted in reality exactly in order to get utility so that's in order to be fully rational yeah Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, and then, then it becomes a semantic argument. Right. Because you said to be that. fully rational, right. where do you draw the line of rationalism? Exactly. What laser are you really using to describe the left brain process? Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful. That's that's exactly a great point. Um, okay, so the Jewish people cannot survive without both approaches. That's what we were saying. Now, this is a very interesting uh, decline that, that he notes here, that there's almost always the same five stages that will happen. So how does it work? Stage one, rationalism approach dominance. So the rationalists were, were dominant. For example, he's gonna talk about medieval Spain. It was a golden age for, for, for Am Yisrael as well as the Spanish, you know, even though it was the dark ages for the rest of the world, it was really a renaissance in a sense 
of culture and science and astronomy and math for the people living in Spain. And you have guys like Karambam and Ibn Ezra coming out of that, you know, and, and uh, the Andalusian um, school of thought came out of that really uh, boon of, of a lot of culture, you know, and, and uh, so that's kind of what was going on at that stage. And then steady increase in the mystical approach for whatever reason, and, and he's gonna discuss this later in the book, he says, there are certain things that are missing from pure rationalism and people start looking towards some mystical things. And then there's the marginalization of rationalists as the mysticism continues to and overtakes the rationalist approach. And then there's the declaration of rationalism is unacceptable. And they say, it's not allowed. And you have to be mystical. And then finally, the denial that a rationalist approach ever existed. And that's what we're seeing today very often by a lot of the, the ultra-Orthodox, I would say, or maybe even others who don't even want to give any credence at all. And they would even read into Harambam uh, mysticism. And, and you know, you know they try to read uh, Kabbalah into Harambam. And, you know, I'm not one to judge, but it doesn't seem very honest. You know, um, so let's see. So rationalism does not mean that we can arrive at conclusions without empirical evidence. So this is super interesting. If you look, and I read a great article once where it was like, th they have this example that there was this rabbi or somebody, or maybe one of these scientists, they drew a, 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 you know, a picture of anatomy. And one of them was like the female anatomy. And it was completely different than the female anatomy we know of today. And this is like a couple thousand years ago, not enough time for it to actually change. So some people would say, oh, yeah, actually it evolved since then. Completely false. And the question is, how could somebody get it wrong? The anatomy, if you just dissect it, it's there. The reason is because they were a rationalist in the ancient form of the term. Rationalist, the way I use it today, does not mean the same thing as rationalism back then. Rationalism back then meant that we can arrive at conclusions without empirical evidence. So it meant somebody could, using their logic and deductive reasoning and whatever it is, and different hermeneutical principles, whatever you want to call it, they sat and they said, what must the female anatomy look like? And they started to draw it out and deduce it logically. And they didn't bother to go and cut a woman, a, a cadaver open because they didn't think it was necessary because to them, rationalism was the only thing you need for truth. So today, rationalism does not mean that. Rationalism doesn't mean just deducing things separate from empirical evidence. Rationalism fundamentally today means relying on empirical evidence and the scientific method. So Harambam believed that you could deduce God's existence. He believed that you could figure out how God exists philosophically. and you, you should be able to prove him. Today, however, we wouldn't necessarily think that that's a rationalist approach. But he was a rationalist in his time. And like a good rationalist, what would Harambam say? He would say, if you're a good rationalist, you would accept the truth from whoever says it of your time. He's written that. So by his own definition, he would have to, if he were alive today, it seems, if he's going to be honest to his own definition, he would have to redefine the way he thinks about God. And he would have to redefine the way that the female anatomy would be studied if 
hypothetically he were the one to have done that. So, so that's just a super interesting thing. And I love the meta-ness of all of this, that we're able to look at what epistemology is. We're able to look at the way that people looked at the tools that they were using. And just by virtue of thinking that rationalism is so great, they didn't even bother to go and do an experiment or look at the world. So that's not what we're looking for with rationalism. We want a rationalism that's in line with science, obviously. Hanambam said, only a fool would deny spontaneous generation. Who knows what spontaneous generation is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. I think it was Pasteur who, uh, who disproved it, I believe. Right. So they believed that animate objects or animate beings could emerge from inanimate objects. So the Gemara notoriously says that lice are allowed to be killed on Shabbat because they're not really alive, I think. Or, and and I, I think that they say something about spontaneous generation. Exactly. Because they spontaneously generate. Exactly. So we know scientifically today how false that is. And yet in Harambam's time, that was the science of the day. He said, you would have to be a fool not to believe in spontaneous generation. I guess I'm a fool. You know, but the point is, Hanambam was so honest to the science of his time that he would say, today, only a fool would believe in spontaneous generation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what it means to be a rationalist in terms of Judaism. Is, and we'll, we'll, we'll go through the differences. This is going to be probably the crux of everything. Holy cow. Unbelievable. You got to be kidding me. I feel like uh, David Wright just walked into my class. <laughs> this is great. Baruch Abba. Really, thank you for coming, Sadiq. I really appreciate that. And he was listening on Zoom. What a guy. Real Sadiq. So, so we're going to get to the crux of the class. He came just in time. We're going to give a little, a few more points, though. So there's this belief that all tenets of Judaism can be logically and philosophically proven. We hit on this a second ago. Adam Baum was very into that. You have, uh, I think, uh, Ibn Pakuda who wrote the, the, the duties of the heart, he goes about to prove the existence of God. And you'll read a lot of that stuff in these medieval works. And it's, it's, they were so sure of it and they had such nice deductive proofs for the existence of God. But today, after having gone through the science that we've gone through, the philosophy that we've gone through, it's clear that those don't really hold water. So Hanambam's claim that you need to be able to know God philosophically and prove him that way should go, according to Rabbi Slifkin, the same way as the, the lice thing, as spontaneous generation. Just like we don't insist that Hanambam still be correct about spontaneous generation, we also don't still insist that Hanambam be correct about philosophically proving God. Even though they're sad, they sound so different, one is law, one's philosophy, for the same underlying reason that we need to accept the science of the time, therefore, and which is what Hanambam himself says, that allows us to now say, I'm still being a rationalist, uh, loyal Jew who is following Hanambam by not following the Hanambam's writings. We follow his underlying principles 
but we don't follow the exact applications of them in Islam. That's super interesting. So many it, arguments. Yes. Sorry, Michael. Is it that do we dismiss that argument or are we open to dismiss it? I think it's that we're, we're open to dismissing it based on the size of our time. Exactly. So that we're not we're not dismissing the underlying principle, but we're dismissing his specific application, which was based on now outdated knowledge. Uh-huh. So that's basically uh, it's the not, we're not dismissing the argument itself. We're dismissing his almost obsession with needing to explain it rationally. Yes, exactly. His need to Yes. I think that that Hanambam's insistence that one needs to prove God is only a product of the science of their time because they didn't know about evolution. Had they known about evolution, it would have been very clear to them that the only answer to, you know, where there is order, there is an order, -er, they would never say that anymore. They didn't need evolution, though. They could have had a spontaneous generation of humans. Anything. They could have picked anything. They had explanations then also. Oh, okay. So, so, so that's a good point. You're saying it doesn't disprove it, but. It's almost like the science of their time led them to, to claim that in the first place. They weren't just claiming it out of a circular reasoning, out of a desire to get to a certain point. They were opening it out of real curiosity. And then they, the, their science led them to believe in that. So we should be open to the science of our time as well. I think that's the point, but that's a great now point. Now in our time right here though, it begs the question of like, why are we even answering this question? Which question? Why are we even having this class? You know, talking about rationalism because rationalism, you could say, oh, then rationalism is so important. But I think now rationalism is also very important. You know, people will, will, will hang their hats on it. It's a big reason why people leave Judaism. Yes. They don't feel that rationalism. Exactly. Doesn't make sense to them. Exactly. So, so while we don't have to follow their logic because we're not in the wherever time that was, I think, uh, in the Middle Ages, but we're exactly. in right now. Yep. And right now, we need a logic. Exactly. And something to make sense for people. That's exactly right here. This this line. No, no, no. I, that's I, I I already skipped to that. Uh -oh. You're just exactly you're hitting it on the head. We want to follow the underlying guiding principles, not necessarily his specific application of them. It's exactly what you're saying. We want to follow the school of thought of rationalism, but we don't. We're not tied, therefore, to every application that has been used for rationalism in the past. So I think that's super interesting. Um, and I know a lot of this feels like introductory stuff, but I, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll pay off as the weeks go on. We'll, we'll, we'll delve even further into this stuff. Um, and, and we'll do other writers as well, not just Rabbi Slifkin. Um, okay, so now many arguments are reflective of science of their time, like we said, even demons and astrology. So things that today people look at as clearly mystical were not necessarily. A lot of very rationalist people believed in demons as a scientific explanation and astrology as a scientific ex explanation, even though today we know it's not scientific. So don't make that mistake. Um, and, um, yes. I agree, I think it is. I think if you need empirical evidence to prove God today, then that is not in line with rationalism actually. It's, it's, it's a funny thing. It's almost like a paradox. This is a pretty bold claim that I'm making. As, as what I said on Shabbat, I think it's irrational 
to claim that rationalism is the only means to truth because of the argument that Rabbi Karmi made about the brain, that if the brain evolved as a whole, then who are we to insist that one part is better than the other? It's irrational. So that's the point. But, but you use the word empirical. Adam didn't know what that word meant. He knew, he knew rationalism. So today it's wrong, I think, number one, to try to prove God rationally. Number two, also, I think it's wrong to try to prove God empirically. So it's a double whammy. So it's all elements of rationalism, I think, are limited in their, in their ability to approach God fully. But I don't think that means that they're bad. I think that they're, they're very useful and necessary for a healthy Judaism. You know? Okay, great. I'm, I'm hearing yes. um, the answer you've given me, yeah. um, which is when you, when you find God, like some people find God at the microscopic level. At the, at, you know, there's that unexplainable, the, you know, at the last step of science. That God of the gaps. God of the gaps, exactly. And they're filling in this tiny gap. But when you're, you're submitting God to that tiny gap, you're kind of minimizing God in that sense. Exactly. And exactly. now he becomes, that, that's all he is. And you're missing like the whole potential picture exactly. of, of, the, of what's going on. Yeah, if you see God as, as only the thing that you can't explain, of course, it's intellectually dishonest, but also it's missing out on everything else, like you're saying. That's exactly, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and that's something I always try, we always, even in this, this discussion, we're going to try to be careful of, because it's so easy to fall into that trap. Um, a lot of those, uh, you know, science and God books very often fall into that trap, I think, as well. You know, they try to fit God into what science can't explain yet, you know? Um, so that's doomed to fail. And then metaphysical supernatural forces and, uh, and reality of mystical worldview. So that's just the definition of the word metaphysical as we might encounter it soon. So now this is very interesting. These are the differences that Rabbi Slifkin points out between uh, rationalism and mysticism. The primary differences. So first of all, knowledge. So first, uh, the rationalist camp would say reason, the senses, evidence, rather than faith, are the most important thing for gaining knowledge. And the mystics prefer revelation and faith in those experiencing revelation. So like Nevi'im, as well as personal revelation, um, and the natural order versus the supernatural order. So the mystics, uh, how, you know, if you ever read uh, Rabbi Tatz's book, World Mass, He's a prime example of that. Mystics explain the world as primarily functioning with a supernatural order, that there's this mystical realm that we don't know of that's beyond just this realm. And it's the primary realm. It's the most important realm out there. More important than this realm of the physical that we see versus the rationalist camp, which would say this realm is more important than the other realm. Yes. Couldn't we just say that any realm that exists is a natural realm? Is a is a, a natural, natural realm. realm. Like anything that exists, okay, natural. So that's the thing that they, they they have a, their claim is you can't prove that it exists. The 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 metaphysical realm. Okay, but if it happens to exist, then it's a natural thing. If it doesn't happen to exist, but that's it's wrong. they would disagree with that. It's just, it becomes semantic. Right. Okay, let's how let's it leave it. How could it not? You're right. It has to stay in semantics. And I guess they would, they, would, they would talk about experience also. They would say you have to experience it. But yeah, are they really different? It sounds like the only difference between the mystics and... No, but they, they, they function with different laws. We have the laws of physics in this realm. The supernatural order has different laws. And we'll see that as, as this continues, is that the natural order versus miracles or 
when I do rituals, am I doing rituals for the sake of here or for the sake of the mystical realm? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Isn't that funny that Harambam needs to give that kind of an explanation for Nevi'im because it could be something so mystical and he needs to give you the rationalist background. Well, the Torah says that the entire nation of slaves got Nevi'ah. Yeah. I mean, they had 49 days, whatever it was to build up to that. But exactly. They didn't, you know, so it's very tough. Exactly. Exactly. Well, the Torah doesn't really claim that everybody had Nevi'ah. If you read the text very closely, but that's one debate you could have. But many people would claim that everyone did have Revelation. The other debate is, I think, that Harambam, um, you know, the people would debate within Harambam, how does that work? How could everybody get it? How could Bil'am get Nebuah? So it's a whole discussion for sure. But I, I definitely hear what you're saying, that it's a great balance between the mystical realm and the physical realm, and that they're supposed to do physical, practical things in this realm. I 100% I, I agree. Um, the next thing is the order of nature. So natural order versus miracles. What do they emphasize more? What's more important? Um, the supernatural entities, are they a threat to monotheism or just a small, and, and therefore there's just a small number of those entities when we need them. So a rationalist really tries to claim less miracles and less of these angels and demons and things, because if God is monotheistic, then the idea of other spiritual beings doesn't add to his monotheism. It, in a way, it, it kind of challenges it. And you could kind of get to where Christianity has taken it with the idea of a devil and a god and the devil's at odds with God. How does that work? That's very not in line with, with monotheism, you know? So that's really interesting. Uh, the mystics maximize forces of holiness and evil, sefirot, alamot, angels and demons. So it's just a different way of looking at the world and the thing about it is, obviously, you can't prove them wrong. You can't look at a mystic and say, oh, you're just totally off. You know, like, you have no way of proving to them that there's no mystical realm. You have no way of, of definitively proving to them that, the myst that, that there's no mystical realm and that it's not the more important realm than this one and that, therefore, we shouldn't be doing all these things. You can't prove that to them. Question, yeah. I feel that we still should be able to section away the angels, demons, other uh, other supernatural stuff um, in a similar camp to the one we would put spontaneous generation in, right? It seems like for the same the same case that those would have is that we don't have evidence against them. But A, they're unfalsifiable. So like any, you can make so many crazy, crazy arguments that would lead you to the same conclusion mm -hmm. as the demons argument. You know, someone could say, ah, oh, spontaneous generation, doesn't happen in any case where you test it. Okay. So you're coming from a rationalist perspective, and I agree with you, but there's another school of thought that doesn't accept the premise you started off with, which was a logical one. True, but how can we, how can we with that rational perspective, how can we uh, group the other side into, into the same camp? What do you mean? How do, like, we... how, how, do you, how do we welcome with open arms that perspective? Ah, so there, 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 should, there certainly should be a limit when it, when it has pr practical ramifications. Right. And that's, you know, I, I'm not a politician <laughs> or a lawmaker, but I think cool. obviously there are things in place in society, thank God, that tell us what it's a, what's considered freedom of religion and what's not. 
you know, and obviously we wouldn't want to impose too much on them or on the way that they think, you know, there's nothing wrong with, um, I'm, everyone is a mystic in some way, I think. Wouldn't you guys agree, right? We're not all completely rational. I think that a lot of us believe in things that are not just rational. You believe in love and friendship. It's not just a rationalist thing. It's something that you experience in a, in a almost mystical way. And now, yes, you could come back to the logic of how it works and you could talk about oxytocin, but do you lead your life that way? I don't think you have to talk about oxytocin. When, you talk, when, you, when it comes to love, you can say, this is something that I feel in the story. It's not, a person wouldn't say uh, love, to say I feel love and therefore uh, love exists like as an entity as a, of its own in some other world is something different than saying I feel love. Like one is, is, is rooted in some experiential evidence. Yeah. And the other isn't. One is saying, how does one feel that demons exist in some other plane of existence? Mm -hmm. Well, then and what is experience? Yeah, one is experience. One so is what is experience? I could say I experience the whole world of love. Yeah. Right. And I do say that uh, at times, like a lot of it. Um, now, where is the, the rational logic to say that that is not true? The rational logic wouldn't be to, to invalidate your feeling, right? Yeah. Your feeling is your feeling. No one can take that away from you. That, yeah. it, your feeling might even be true. You might actually see the world in that way, and that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. But to say the world is that way is a different statement. That's a Make scientific clear cut that it has to be that way versus it's that way for me. Mm -hmm. I see this as also a very much um, a lost translation. Like we're speaking different languages. Yes, and I think <laughs> that's much. that's a that's a big thing is no, that they have, they're apples and oranges. They have different functions. First of all, hello, ID, how you doing? Baruch haba. Oh yeah, you're muted, ID. Sorry. Uh, hey. I said sorry, I'm late. I got jammed up, but I wanted to make a cameo because I love you. I love you. You're the best. Don't worry about it, and I'll I'll fill you in if you want. And uh, I appreciate yeah, you'll send you. Send me the repeat. Hundred percent. Is this the scoreboard here? Is that what you covered? This is what we're covering. In the yes, exactly. We're still we're still in the middle of covering it for sure. We're getting right, some great. some good feedback from everybody, which is great. I, I agree with this with this uh, discussion very much, and I think that the what what it's bringing up for me at least is the different is the almost like the difference between religion and science that they're just different things in terms of their function they function differently it's almost like i opened up a dictionary and i i thought i was gonna i thought i was reading a, a poem about everything you know that that famous quote like if you it's from real life foreman i think right that if you open up a dictionary and you expect to read a poem about everything it's because you didn't understand the purpose of it you know so if you look at religion and you expect it to find science you'll be very dismayed and vice versa so the same thing goes with this left brain, right brain thing. The same thing goes for the experience versus the, the understanding of it. Yeah, when we're talking about utility, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Like religion is, is for, as long as, like if we're saying, as long as we, we agree, okay, religion is for something, right? And then you can get something out of it, right? There's some utility to it. Um, I guess the difference is, is, or the thing that I'm curious about is when we're talking about mysticism, is there actual utility? In it? Mm -hmm. I, I think... Emil Durkheim would be the best answer to that. And that is that, oh, you're asking about mysticism, mysticism within religion. Or you, you think you, you're trying to say religion could just be purely rationalist without any mysticism to it. So my answer would be 
rationalism does not do justice to the experience of God. And I think any real experience of God that I've experienced has been mystical. It is not rational. It's fundamentally ir not irrational, non-rational. If, non if you understand what I mean. But that doesn't sound non-rational. It sounds that, that there's a, a feeling that you get, and it sounds like you would assume that that feeling is somewhat universal. The experience itself cannot be put into words. That's the point. And the second Sam Harris or you or anybody else tries to put it into words, that's when we realize the limits of rationalism. That's my, my humble opinion about it. But, but obviously, right. you know, it's everyone's experience. So I, I, Sam has the right to do that. Yeah, of course he has the right to do that. Yeah, no, Sam aside. Exactly. You can put it into words. Say it why, again. Why couldn't you put it into words? Because, because the words, words fundamentally do not describe actual things. They're just the way that we describe them. A, a word cannot be the thing itself. No, but mysticism is the way. It could point to it. So mysticism is trying to explain the fact that, that rationalism is limited. Mysticism doesn't have to imply demonology and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. It just points to, to the, the limits, in my definition of it, to the limits of rationalism. So what's the point of mysticism you think is, actual, is actually a, a useful point? I think this, the, the pointing to the mystery, the pointing to the limits of rationalism. That's an interesting definition, utility of mysticism. What do you mean by utility? In the sense, utility for what? Our, our lives. A lot, so like there's a lot of research on spirituality, actually healing people. In the sense okay. of like uh, addicts struggling, looking for meaning, purpose. Of course. Mm -hmm. And having that meaning, feeling that you're part of something greater, feeling like a, a sense of belonging. It can be in itself a bonding. Now we look at those utility. Um, it might it it goes past the question of true or not. It just functions. It works. Now we can start to, if if it's not true though, then it becomes problematic because it can be broken down, and then, and then maybe you'll lose all these benefits perhaps. So you want to find the most true answer, and I think that's where rationalism comes in and helps out because we need to build this house. We can't just have a deck of cards and then all of a sudden. I lose my spirituality because someone makes a good argument against me, and now I'm an addict again. I don't, yeah, I don't know. But you know what I mean? 100. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah. you have something that works, it would make sense to analyze it, see why it works, so then you can replicate it in a good way. Yeah. So just to to continue, because we only have a couple of minutes, we'll just finish off with just some of these talk, talking points, and of course, I want to hear your feedback. Were the sages, Hazal, rationalists, or mystics? We mentioned the Bishmael versus the Akiva. You know, they give this example of Atala Sefardeya. And the Sephardea came out of the uh, of the Eor in ancient Egypt, right? The, the second plague. So Rabbi Akiva says it was one Sephardea. They started hitting it, and all the different Sephardeim came out, right? So Rabbi Azar bin Azariah reprimands him and says, no, you, you don't have to say that. You could just say it was one. And then when it started doing its thing, all the other ones followed it. You know, so there's, there's just a fundamental different way of interpreting things. Rabbi Akiva made the 10 plagues out to really be 50, and then he added 250 by the sea. So this is just to try to show you an amazing figure. Like Rabbi Akiva, we shouldn't reject him just because he was uh, mystic, but he fits every example of what we're talking about in terms of mysticism. Um, you have here half of the blood at Har Sinai. Uh, Rabbi Ishmael says Moshe had expertise. So the question again, what I raise is, how could Moshe know exactly what half the blood is to, this, to the decimal place? So one guy would say it's a miracle. One guy would say God showed him an angel did it. Uh, Rabbi Ishmael says Moshe had experience, expertise in this. He, he studied the way to, 
to do it the, the best way, and he figured it out. So that's that's Rabbi Ishmael, who's more of a logical guy. Moshe raising his hands with uh, with the war with Amalek. Bnei Israel look heavenward for divine help. It's a very natural, rational explanation. It's rational to a degree, you know, up to the degree to which God comes in. But it's rational in the sense that it's not it's not a magical thing that when he points to heaven that they start winning. Rather, it's when they start praying to God and relying on God's inspiration that they start to win. Uh, the man, is it the food of angels or is it physical food brought by God's agency and on and on and on. So this is just to try to give you a snapshot of the fact that this is something that pervades Jewish thought and arguments in the Gemara. We're almost done. We've got a minute left. Both rationalism and mysticism were present. Each person takes their pick. That's the point. And I think as we continue, I'll, I'll try to maybe give one or two more classes on this topic to really try to flesh out, I think, the best points of the book in terms of what does it really mean for, for rationalism to be at its best form? And what does it really mean for mysticism to be at its best form? And what do they look like in their ugliest forms? That's another question too. Um, the Babylonian versus the Jerusalem Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud has a lot less mysticism, demons, angels, sorcery, magic, astrology. Demonology was giving credence, however, in Babel, which explains why the Babylonian Talmud is so filled with a lot of that stuff. The idea of a Zoroastrian influence on Babylonian thinking. Okay, so now there's the, the, the development of just a very brief rundown. There was a development of a divide within Judaism going on. So we mentioned the Spanish Golden Age, Islamic medieval period, medicine, astronomy, math, natural Greek philosophy were on the up and up. You had people like uh, Rambam, Me'idi, Ibn Ezra. They were the foremost and most prominent people. They were very educated. Um, and even Ramban, Nahmani, who we often think of as a complete mystic, had very clear rationalist tendencies because he lived in French Spain. So he, even he was influenced by that rationalism. And the non-rationalists, however, the pendulum swung back because when they saw how great rationalism was doing in Andalusia and with Harambam and Ibn Ezra and Ibn Idi, they were galvanized to make a response to that. And you get in the 14th century, the Zohar is published. And that's a very big deal. And that begins the, 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 the real uh, back and forth between these two groups. In Christian Europe in the 16th century, yes, Erwin. No, so Michael, that so I'm sorry to jump in, but uh, I thought the Rambam wasn't on the page of the Zohar. Exactly, he's not. That's the, the Zohar is a response to Harambam's kind of thinking. Ah, right. Exactly. So that's it's it's a it's directly a, a response, and I don't think I think that's the beauty and the help of a good society and a good religion is to be able to provide for different kinds of thinkers, and the Zohar is that. For the people who don't swing re uh, reductionist or sorry rationalist only. But Michael, is the Zohar's theme totally mystical, or or is there, let's say, on the ground, you know, um, like let's say the Rambam's model? But why is he? Why was he like in a, in a, in a you know in a in a snapshot answer so against the Zohar? So the, the Rambam lived before the Zohar, but he he right. lived. Yeah, but the, the, the type of thinking that the Zohar had, Harambam rejected that type of thinking. Right. You know that, also, that right, so he was against the model of mysticism, and then the Zohar was published right. after he passed. Right. Exactly. And yeah. they started burning his Moreni Bukhim. They started burning his God for the perplexed. 
Right, that was the book that, that was controversial in their eyes, right? Exactly. But there was there was there was no mysticism in in the and then and the guide to the perplexed. No. no, I would say I haven't read the whole thing, but right, I think right, but I'm saying in general the model wasn't that. Exactly, the model was very Aristotelian, very right. rationalist. Right. Um, so then, just to to finish up this thing, you have Christian Europe in the 16th century. The, the rabbinic apologists, apolog, uh, you know, to be apologetic, we use it in modern parlance to mean like, oh, you're just defending something. But there were actual apologists who lived, who dedicated their lives to actually, you know, defending the, the holy works. So in the 16th century, in Christian Europe, rabbinic apologists fit the outdated statements of Hazal into the mystic lens because they were presented with different ideas of astronomy. And if you look at the Gemara's astronomy, it's clearly outdated. So they found ways by taking it into the mystical realm to justify it because they couldn't justify it on a, on a purely rationalist realm. Um, and then finally, you have the enlightenment and the emancipation. And then finally, and now the, the pendulum is swinging back and a lot of Jews did leave towards complete secularism. But you have a guy like Rabbi Shimshon uh, El Hirsch, who was a paragon for this idea of Torah Umada. Torah and science together, Torah and worldly knowledge together, even YU today has that as one of its slogans. Um, right. And then Benjamin swings even further back today with, uh, or in those days even, with anti-rationalism mm -hmm. from the Hasidim and the backlash to Hasidim from Rabbi Haim from Velojin. But even that right. was based on the Tohar, which is also mystical. So ah. the, the rationalism continues. So the point of Rabbi Slifkin is not to claim rationalism is better or worse or anything like that, but it's to defend the, the credibility and the validity of rationalism in light of the historical importance of it and the philosophical importance of it for a healthy Judaism. So, uh, you know, if you guys need to log off, feel free. I completely understand. If anybody needs to leave, feel free. I really do understand. And, uh, if, if you guys have any questions, I'm, I'm here. If you, if you have any questions or any comments, I would love to hear. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any questions, guys, even on Zoom, in person, anybody? So. Yeah. About the rabbinic apologists? Yes. Um, so why did they feel like they had to fit, fit, like, fit everything into the system? Why can't you just say, okay, you know, Things you're saying are wrong, but like, what's, what's the deeper meaning of what you're saying? Like, why do we have to like take what they say? Oh, you know, it fits. Like, you know, it's a great question. So, in the eyes of a lot of mystics, they view the rabbis who wrote this stuff as fundamentally infallible. And even it, though they were rationalists, no, it wasn't the rationalists who were doing it. These are the, no, but these rabbis. Oh, the apologists were 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 mystic. Right, but the rabbis that we're talking about were rational. The, the Hazal is, is uh, the, the rabbis who wrote the Gemara were both. They fell into both camps. So the, the, the mystics interpreting them assumed, of course, that everyone thinks like them. And they said, um, that we have to fit their words about astronomy into reality. And we know from modern science that the astronomy that they wrote about was completely off. So let's fit that in to our metaphysical understanding of the world and show that the rabbis, when they wrote this stuff about the planets, were really talking about metaphysics and not physics. And in that way, they were able, able to be apologetic for the rabbis.
Yeah. All right. So really, thank you very, very, very much for tuning in. I see Michael, Rabbi thank you for the fantastic class. And thank, thank you, everybody, you, for joining. I appreciate right, same it. Same time. And same time next week. Same time next week. And, and uh, well, 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 maybe go a couple more weeks with this stuff. And I'll see uh, maybe even in between, we'll do another topic in Jewish philosophy. If you guys have any questions or recommendations for me, I'd love to hear. So thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Mike. Good luck. Thank you, guys. Thanks, so Mike. Erwin, you're the best. Thank you.